Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Welcome to episode 136 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm David. I'm Diana. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week we're discussing flawed but likable characters stretching from the feature film all the way to universe and beyond. You know, I mean, you look back on television shows like Father Knows Best and, and Leave It to Beaver, it's amazing how far uh, television entertainment has come, you know, uh, over the course of uh, 30, 40 years, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is that really television is a zeitgeist for what is going on. It's a mirror. Exactly. It's a mirror of what is going on as far as questions we're asking and what we're going through. This is the beauty of television over film. Films tend to take anywhere from one to six years to get out there. I mean, I just watched Cabin in the Woods this last weekend. Mm-hmm. The thing was shot, what, four years ago? Mm-hmm. So, uh, whereas television, it gets made. You know, they write it, they shoot it, they produce, they finish it, they get it out there. From start to end, you're talking maybe three, four months. So mm-hmm. they can really reflect the questions that we're all asking and what we are going through individually and as a nation and now with the way that media is working as you know a glo- on a global level then you know? there are shows out there that I've known that have been able to move even faster than that, than that I mean South Park I know has has turned around episodes you know much quicker depending on you know the situation in society whatever is going on there or been able to add little touches that that make it all the more all the more humorous. I mean, I don't, I don't watch the show myself, but I've got friends who do, and they'll say, "Yeah, this was on the news last week, and this week South Park was talking about this." Yeah, that that is an amazing turnaround for an animated series. I am reminded of an episode of West Wing. Nine uh, Eleven happened, and uh, yeah, it was the only episode that was outside of continuity, wasn't that's it? That's right. It was, and literally the the writer producer Aaron Sorkin wrote it in one day. It was basically a morality play, and. Uh, it was really a terrific episode, and they donated all the proceeds from the profits of the episode to the New York uh, Fire Department and Police Department. And it really uh, it asked great questions, and it had its characters take different positions, which was very refreshing. But that would that was like within two weeks of uh, 9-11 happening at the most. It was really an extraordinary accomplishment. So and yes, All of us were still asking why, you know? Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, television is definitely a mirror on our collective thoughts. And, uh, you know, it's the cool fire. This is what I tell my students. I mean, we, since the beginning of time, since we moved out of grunts into the beginnings of language and we formed groups and tribes, we have sat around a fire at night and told stories, stories, morality stories to teach the young and to remind ourselves of what is right and what is wrong. Now uh, we use the television as that device, and it's a cool fire instead of a hot fire, but it still serves its purpose. So Stargate, the feature film. I want to start off there. But you know what? Let's, mm. let's, let's step back for a minute. Um, it's been about a month since we've done a show. How are you doing? I know. I am doing really well. I am uh, waiting on final edits from MGM. Nudge, nudge. Right. Drift. I got to see a sneak peek of the cover art, which was really cool. And Lindsay mm. Allen, who does the covers, has put a little Easter egg on it that mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see if people pick up on or not. 
Um, so that's doing well. Epilogue is out there, getting great response. We are submitting into competitions. Uh, it's a new semester, and thank God the 115 degree heat is beyond us. Yes, kind it's of. it's cooling off here as well. It's um it's about uh, about uh, low 100s, high 90s in Phoenix too. So I hope we're out of the woods. It's been really windy lately, which has been managing to cool things down. So winter is coming. Or a semblance of it, yeah. <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah. So, and how are you? How are you? I'm doing? doing well. I'm up for a promotion at PayPal Woo-hoo! in the next few weeks, so I'm looking forward to interviewing for that. So, get this: we have uh, town hall meetings every quarter, which is basically where our managers come in and tell us how the company is doing financially. You know, we're allowed to submit our feedback. It's, I mean, it's completely open. Very healthy. My manager decides to show us a video about how PayPal is moving forward, and it's a it's an internal commercial. It looks just as good as anything that you'd see that you'd see on TV, but it's an it's an internal commercial. It's for us. They've produced it for us, and it was shot like in the LA in the um, California Salt Flats. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Talking about how PayPal is, you know going to going to be moving forward in terms of internet commerce we're driving about 60 percent of e-commerce as it is and lo and behold the actor who they chose to film it is cliff simon (laughs) so they start this thing and and cliff comes i know and cliff comes on he comes on screen and he starts to talk about paypal and and um, Molly says, oh, there's something wrong. I need to restart it. And I turn to her and I say, I know him. And everyone looks at me like, what are you talking about? You know, because they all know that I have a bit of a Hollywood background. You know, I worked in the auction house there and I worked on Stargate for years as a journalist. And she's like, what? And I said, I have his cell phone number in my phone right now. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? And so I contacted Cliff, and he we, we hadn't we haven't talked since we had interviewed him at uh, the convention, at, yeah. yeah, at Timegate. And he said, "Yeah, I haven't seen the film yet." So I I got him his manager connected with my boss and the publicity department to get him a copy of it, and it's great. It's a great little you know five minute uh, commercial, and I'm so disappointed that no one can ever see it. But he did great. <laughs> so, you cannot escape the clutches of ball. So that was bizarre. Very, very yeah. funny. God. Yeah. <laughs> Six degrees of separation, right? I'm telling you, man. Holy cow. Yep. So, but I'm glad I was able to get a copy of that for him. That's but yeah, so. Very cool. So that's what's going on with me right now. Wonderful. It's basically just work. Wonderful, so. wonderful, wonderful. We have a new All TV se- season that's about to start. Yes. Which the tail end of will we'll kind of, you know, get back in, we'll circle back into that. Indeed. Glee is starting up, which we never really talk about on this show, but yeah. uh, I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, there's just, um, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, programming that's, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be coming up. The, the, the submarine pro, I saw an advertise. was it for Last Resort? Is that what it's yes, called? Yes. And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I saw a preview for that on TV the other day, yeah. so that's going to be an interesting pilot. Yeah. Good movies, oh. too. Looper is coming. I can't wait for Looper. Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he is my man crush. Yeah. Holy cow, that and guy Bruce is Willis. awesome. Bruce Willis. Yes. All 
So, yeah, that's going to be, I've heard great things about it. The Toronto Film Festival this weekend, they showed it. I think it opened the festival, in fact. And uh, it got very good reviews. Also, what else got phenomenal reviews, including three standing ovations, was the master, Joss Whedon's uh, take on Much Ado About Nothing, which stars Amy Acker, Alexis Denzahoff, I think Sean Meyer is in it. Um, Nathan Fillion is in it. A lot of <laughs> Fran, uh, Fran Kranz, who was in Cabin in the Woods, who was in Dollhouse, yes. is in it. A lot of Whedon alums, of course, and it got three standing ovations. So wow. I have to assume, I mean, the purpose of one of these film festivals is for independent films like much, this Much Ado About Nothing is to pick up a distributor. And I have to believe that based off that response, that negotiations have gone down and uh, everybody is very happy. So, yes, Good. very thrilled to see it. In, in, very, very thrilled. That's great. The main discussion. The main discussion topic for episode 136 of the podcast is flawed but likable characters. You know, we were talking about this off air. 9-11 kind of, you know, kicked television in the pants. Absolutely. And and made us us want to see um, characters with a little bit more depth. I think part of it came from the fact that, you know, after, after that... I don't know about anyone else, but after after that attack, I began to think about my own mortality a little bit more and how I kind of didn't want to waste my time spending my time on on things that weren't of substance. And television started to provide us with more substantive, is that the right word? Yes. Well, I think more more depth to much more meaty. Although I mean there were certainly certain series before that that were dabbling in it if you look absolutely for instance mash it is now what the 40th anniversary of mash this year which is huge great show which is absolutely huge and you know this show came out during the vietnam war and it was about another war taking place in asia that we were just failing miserably at and uh it was really through hawkeye pierce who was most certainly a flawed but likable character that we experienced the outrage against authority and mm-hmm. the frustrations with uh human beings being used as chess pieces it was a very powerful very powerful ahead of its time story uh star trek deep space 9 Another mm-hmm. example. And, you know, the early years of Stargate. I mean, they were up to season uh, they were up to season three or four when 9-11 happened. And there were most certainly some flawed characters there. But, let, I mean, let's start with the movie Stargate itself. Because, you start off. Yeah. I mean, you had, yeah. Jack, you had Jack O'Neill, one L, um, who... You, yeah, the present day, he is holding a gun. He is holding... I mean, bam, that's how the story basically... The modern-day story basically starts, is that here is somebody who is contemplating suicide and suffering over the pain of losing their child who is willing to go on a suicide run. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't quite know all the details, but we know there's something very wrong here. Now, that's a mm-hmm. flawed character... Was he likable, though, unlike Jack O'Neill, two L's, who we'll get into in a moment? I don't think he Not is at the beginning. Likeable. No, I don't think that the character, quite frankly, for me at any point, I didn't find really? him a particularly likable character. The one that I really, I mean, the two that I dug in the movie 
were Daniel and Scara. Yeah. You know, um, Dan- yeah. Daniel had some flaws in the movie, James Spader's version. He, uh, he was clearly very eccentric and uh, very self-centered, very self-centered, <laughs> very ignorant of what was going, very narcissistic, very unaware of what was going on around well, him. Here's a guy who was out to prove himself, exactly. who had been laughed out of, of from from his peers. And, you know, he was he the Stargate provided him with an opportunity to say I was right. And he was willing to do whatever it took to collect as much information as possible. Right. But in the process, he found a life. He grew. And he found a cause. Yeah. Yep. No, that character definitely grew, even within the film, because he was a very sheltered uh, academic mm-hmm. beforehand. And uh, when, as things went on, he really learned that he needed to basically excuse the non-politically correct phrase, but he had to man up. In order mm-hmm. to survive the circumstances, he had to make sacrifices and he had to push himself. And I think that's why he, that particular character, we become enamored with him within the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly within the series to a certain extent as well, because this is somebody who is very young and naive and very single-minded in his focus that learns that they have to open up their eyes and look around them to, in regards to realities versus their academic theories. So mm-hmm. I would put Daniel in the yay column for flawed but likable. Jack, you know, I mean, he was interesting, but I couldn't connect to him. And that's part of why flawed but likable, you need both parts of that to make a really strong character mm-hmm. in today's storytelling. I mean, you had said this when we were off air, it is that, you know, it's all been done before. All the stories have been done before. So it really is about new takes and new approaches. And since we follow characters on these journeys, whether it is in television or film or comic books or a play or a novel or a short story, it is the, how the character is shaped that matters mm-hmm. to the story. Down deep. Yes, exactly. Not just on the surface. Exactly. Now, the series is another issue, wouldn't you agree, in regards to flawed but likable? I mean, you have to put hats off to to Richard Dean Anderson for recognizing what he would Mm -hmm. need to do to that character. Uh, He he doesn't just start off with his own take on Jack, either. He transforms over the course of the first few episodes of season one into a likable character. Yes. So there is a believable transition there. You know, a year has passed, so already he's more, you know, responsive to, you know, the people around him. He's quit smoking, he's divorced, you know, there, he is in a better place now in his head. He is not in such a dark, dark place. Well, in fact, but, when we first see him in the yes. pilot, he's very retrospective. He is very mm-hmm. introspective. He's looking, um, you know, at a telescope and he's mm-hmm. thinking about... Uh, where the real action is, it's out there, mm-hmm. and you know it's obvious for those who know the, the the movie beforehand that he is probably searching for Abydos in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, he's already done some growth, and I think even in the pilot, you start to see some of his teasing, some of the jocular stuff. Absolutely, uh, Absolutely. See, like I said, it's been a year, you know. Right. So you see some of the frustration. Yeah. You see more compassion for him. Uh, you know, he feels terrible. Uh, when he sees that Kowalski and the rest of the company has been pulled into the briefing room, he uh, mm-hmm. he's terrified. They all were part of a cover-up. That's right, exactly. And to lie, I mean, he definitely was a dedicated Air Force man, and he believes in his oath. So 
That bothered him. And then when Hammond threatens to send the bomb through, he is ter- he's terrified. He is genuinely yeah. terrified in a way that I don't think that the O'Neill with one L would have <laughs> exhibited. But, you know, as far as Jack's growth is concerned, um, he certainly grew from a beginning to a middle in the sense of from being a loner and being introspective to recognizing the value of his team, of SG-1, mm-hmm. and their importance to him. But I don't know if he grew any further than that, really. Um, I mean, they definitely, I don't want to say dumbed him down in the later se- se- seasons, but sometimes it does feel like they did that. And in fact, The Drift, my book that's going to be coming out hopefully sometime later this year, <laughs> is all about why he's behaving like that. But that's mm-hmm. my theory on it. I don't mm-hmm. feel like his character had as grand an arc as it could have. Daniel most certainly had a bigger arc than Jack Yeah. Did. Yeah, he absolutely did. Now, Daniel's yeah. your favorite. I mean, what do you see as being his flaws versus his likability within the series? The episode that I think back on is Meridian. He's got Oma Dasala talking to him, trying to tell him, you know, you did change things for the better. You made a better world. You made a better universe. And Daniel can't get over Share. He can't get over Sarah Gardner. And he can't help but feel like he has been a failure until Oma says, I can't spend any more time with you. I got to get back to, you know, the astral diner and serve up some pancakes. So you've got to, I've taken you as far as you can go. You know, you have to recognize that you are worthy of ascension or this is not going to go anywhere. So, and he eventually does, you know, he eventually does go that way. I think it's one of the greatest episodes of television, period. It's a very beautiful episode, no question. Um, but to me, that really is the middle of his story. It's not the end of his story. That's true. then, um, you know, he comes back from Ascension, and he uh, he's changed. I mean, the character but, is definitely become more warrior and less scholar. But to me, he never became as interesting as that again. No. He became you know, a sounding board for other characters like Vala, you know, dealing with, and Vala is someone who I'd like to get into momentarily, dealing with Adria, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with her past and trying to, uh, again, recognize her own self-worth in the situation that she's been flung into. But I do think, Daniel, as much as the finale for the series of Stargate SG-1, as much as it frustrated many of our listeners and perhaps ourselves, especially myself, um, Mm -hmm. Daniel had one really powerful scene in there when he confronts Vala about what Vala wants, and it becomes clear that here is a man who has lost his ability to trust uh, mm-hmm. and he has fallen into some of Jack's bad habits, mm-hmm. and um, she is basically pushing him and demanding of him that he put take his heart out and put it on the table again, and mm-hmm. he can't. He just – he refuses to – Well, he's never completely him. trusted her. No, but I don't think he's ever really trusted anybody. That's true. You know? That's true. I mean, he had his heart broken. He saw, he watched his wife just get taken over by a monster, literally, uh-huh. and just become this horrific thing. And then at the hands of one of his best friends and teammates had to die. Mm-hmm. You know? And he has been, th- he went through all sorts of hell. 
So, I mean, that does affect you. That absolutely does affect a character in negative ways. I think that, you know, they could have gone even darker with him when he came back. I would like to have seen that. Oh, yeah. I would like to have seen him question, did he come back wrong, to use the old Joss Whedon Buffy question, um, and to have him struggle with trust issues instead of just adapting Jack's behaviors, which is what he really did more and more after Anderson RDA was off the show. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, Daniel really was his best in seasons one through five. Although, I mean, his his visits in season six were lovely. You, you can't deny Oh, it. don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he was, again, more of a sounding board for other characters at that point. Yeah, he was a writer's tool, so, as we like to call mm-hmm. him. He was a device, no question. And I can't, I, I can't not mention Tilk, you know? Yeah. I always go back to Korai. In season oh. in season one, you know, I rewatched that a, a couple of months ago. I mean, that's they talk about a character, you know, who was a part of a horrible crime, and still, you know, because he chose to lay down his staff and, or at least turn the staff the other direction, should yeah. I say, throw the staff. You know? <laughs> Became a very interesting character from someone, you know, when I was watching the pilot, you know, I was like, who is this guy? This is just, this is just a drone, you know, and no, he's not. No, he's definitely not. But I don't know about flaws. I mean, there was beyond that. Yeah, there was innocence. Obviously, he didn't get modern. He didn't get pop culture on Earth. And he had a very, but he had a very singular way of approaching things. And he was honest and sincere and. He caught, couldn't be bought and very single-minded. So I don't know about – I mean he, he left behind the flaws. That's true. He left behind the flaws. So uh, – but yeah, let's talk about Vala. Well, actually, let's talk about the original team and then we'll move on to Vala. M- one of my biggest complaints is the way Sam was handled as a character. Um, she needed yeah. more flaws. She really no. needed flaws. She was superwoman. She was yes, she was too Mary Sue, too perfect, um, and there was such potential there. I mean, you would see they would start to dabble in it in different episodes. Uh, Ascension uh, mm-hmm. is is a great example where she basically no personal life, right? No personal life, but also that she hides something from everybody else, uh, which I find fabulous. Um, and I would say that one episode for me, for Sam, is probably her at her most interesting. Uh, she's mm-hmm. at her most open, most certainly. Mm-hmm. And it's not a question of the actors. The actress most certainly could have handled anything they threw at her. But they made her Super Sam. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I will tell you, as a writer for the books, she's the one I have the hardest time writing because mm. there's not enough flaws to connect to. When I, you know, in, in For Dragons, I had her dad around, Jacob, and it was easier to write her. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, in the drift... Because he knew her, he, he knew her from, from beginning to end, you know. He knew her as a child and as an adult. Right, well, she had external flaws in the sense that she had a less than perfect father who then went through his own growth and became, yeah. you know, somebody better who still had flaws. Talk about a great, flawed, but likable character. I mean, yeah. Jacob Carter, oh... What Selmak. a fantastic character. Uh, mm-hmm. Great to write, great to watch. I can never get sick of his episodes. Um, so having her as a reflection, having him as a reflection on her certainly helped. Um, 
I think every time they tried to dabble in what was eating at her, if something was bothering her, is that it, it, it always failed what they call the Bechtel test. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Uh, I'll, I'll get the right spelling mm-hmm. for you to, for the page. It's uh, a, uh, I believe an anthropologist did a study of television and film and created this test of wherever you have a scene with two women, if it can be a scene where they don't talk about men now there were a couple of scenes like that with her and Frazier and I know that the actresses fought for that man I commend them for that sticking Mm -hmm. up sticking up for their characters but as the series progressed it did become about the guys uh you know uh the excellent example being uh a hundred days where Mm -hmm. Frazier comes in and uh Sam admits that she misses the colonel and, yeah. you know, and Frazier, Dr. Frazier, Janet's like, well, is there a problem here? And there's all that subtext. It's fun stuff mm-hmm. for the shippers. No question about it. But come it's on. flat. Yes, it's very flat and it's very old hat. So, I mean, Sam really could have benefited. And you, again, you know, the actress could do it because, I mean, as Helen Magnus in Sanctuary, at least in the early years, she was a great gritty character. With mm-hmm. many, many facets. But I think that Vala was an attempt on the part of the writers who, to compensate for what they did with one female character by creating another one who was very flawed. There were a lot of people who, at I mean, I, I mean, I, we all knew Vala at that point anyway, through right. stealing the Prometheus, for crying out loud. Season nine, you know, she had come in for a little while as an interesting foil to kind of compensate for the less estrogen on the, on the, on the show at that point. But in season ten, there were a lot of fans who were like, y- "You're gonna give this this woman an SG one badge? You got to be crazy. That's nuts." She's a thief and con artist, and I mean, yep. I don't think she's a murderer, but I mean, this is not this individual is not SG one material, and I remained very positive uh, throughout that. I re- I remember, you know, we we sat down with with Brad and Rob, and you know, I think I'm sure it's in the interview archive somewhere where we addressed that fan concern. And they were definitely stating that there is there is going to be a growth for this character. You you know where she came from. We're plotting a course from where she's from where she's going. Adria is obviously very central to that. That's why she's on SG One because she is connected to the Ori leader. And I was very satisfied with her growth as a character, and that they were still able to keep her jagged edges intact for the most part. Throughout that, she was still conniving. She was still a renegade, so to speak. But at the same time, here you had a character who, by the seventh or eighth or ninth episode of that of that tenth season, found her self worth, you know, and began to reflect that in her actions. See, I see the character so differently than you do. Really? I, I do never, tell. And I love Claudia Black and Farscape. Talk about great, flawed, but likable characters. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, I had a real problem with the, excuse the cliche phrase, but the harlot with a heart. I mean, that's what she was playing. And uh, I was very bored by it. I was very tired by it. And I was very frustrated that mm. I felt like. Sam, who I have been with for years now, was being sidelined for this 
ridiculous fanboy interpretation of another female character. And I just feel that there are other ways that could have gone with her without her having to use her sexuality to get ahead. I had a real issue with that. Um, Sam didn't have to. I mean, mind you, Sam needed more complications. I mean, one of my favorite moments in the series in the later seasons is when Sam flat out, speaking of Cliff Simon, punched Ball in the face. Mm -hmm. I screamed out loud, rewound, and played it like five more times in a row. I loved it. You know, it was a moment where we saw a spine and we saw Sam acting as a human being and not necessarily as a soldier. Uh, she was pissed because, I mean, Ball had done some terrible things to her and to Jack and to everybody else. And she just let him have it. I'd mm-hmm. like to have seen more of that side of her. But, you know, the using your sexuality to be cute and clever and get ahead it's demeaning to, to women. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Sam, having talked with, uh, you know, I have an Air Force consultant that I use for the books, uh, a woman, actually, Captain Angela Webb with the Air Force uh, in New York. They have a public relations office there, and they mm-hmm. assign you somebody. It's really cool. And um, I've talked with her. I've talked with other women in the Air Force. And there were quite a few that pointed to one of their influences, one of the things that inspired them to join was Samantha Carter. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's very hard. It's, it's always hard to write characters and it's hard for men to write women. It's hard for women to write men. You know, I speak from experience on this one. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do feel that more effort could have been made to make Sam dynamic and to make Vala. I, you know, I love the idea of the thief. I mean, I love the idea of a former Goa'uld. I, I thought mm-hmm. that those were great ideas. I just, the sexuality thing bugged the living crap out of me. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I felt that it was a lazy flaw, hmm. if that makes sense. All right. You know, so there's our, there's our SG-1 thoughts. Shall we move on <laughs> to Atlantis? SGA. A, yes, its own set of very flawed but likable characters. Well, you had at the very get-go a very similar um and i think i've i think i've stated this before uh where my mother came in as the pilot was uh as as the pilot was running and you know she she'd seen sg1 an episode here or there but she's definitely not gotten into it you know she definitely uh, she only knows the names of the characters because i've mentioned them from time to time and uh, uh Shepard leans back in the in the uh, ancient chair and paints a picture on the ceiling and says, "Did I do that?" And my mom turns to me and she says, "He's just like the other guy." And that's never left me. They wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction in Atlantis, but but not so much. I mean, you still got a snarky character, but I think the thing that really set, you know, Shepard apart from the beginning was he was the black sheep of the air force I and mean, you look at colonel sumner's reaction to him mm-hmm. you know this is a guy who he's not willing to trust and who over the course of the pilot very similar in, to the the stargate feature film with o'neill has to rebuild himself I, th- I think that that was really what what one of the cool aspects of of shepherd was that we had a character who was willing to put his comrades over um Orders, which I mean, we can go around and around debating, you know, wh- whether or not that was a 
whether or not that was a good idea. I mean, certainly they introduced another officer uh, later on, Colonel Everett, who was not a fan of Shepard because of that specific reason, couldn't trust him. But I think it made the character interesting. Well, I mean, Jack was the same way, leave no man behind. But what was lovely about how they handled it in Stargate Atlantis is that they really showed it to us. I cannot remember the episode, and I'm sure you Phantoms. Can. Is that the one where he thinks That's that the one he's where, yeah. Yeah, in the Middle East? Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing that really separated, I think, Shepard from Jack is that Shepard was very uh, verbally supportive and complimentary in a genuine manner of his his team, um, mm-hmm. you know, when it was deserved. Jack, I mean, getting Jack to give compliment was like, you know, <laughs> well, you're an alien, too, but you're different. <laughs> Yeah. You know, that's yeah. as good as it got with Jack, which was fun and interesting in its own way. But, um, I mean, I, I never felt for Shepard the way that I felt about Jack. Uh, I felt that Jack was much more complex than John Shepard. I agree. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, Flanagan, I think, did a really good job with the role. I think he did as good as he could with what he was given. Um, I can imagine that he would like to have done more. Um, I think for me, quite frankly, um, you know, Rodney really is the one character who has a real complete. He's the flawed arc. one. He has a whole arc. He's an arrogant prick. And, <laughs> Excuse but, my language, but I mean, he was. He started but, off that way. And he was spineless. And he was the. Oh, I mean, we were talking about Daniel being narcissistic. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Nothing compared to Rodney McKay. Oh, yeah, Sam, in five minutes of meeting him, her smile went away and never really came back. She would keep lemons wherever she could, just in case, you know. But Uh, he really grew. I mean, he grew so much in that series. And maybe it mm -hmm. got a little Rodney heavy from time to time. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the actor delivered. So Mm -hmm. I I can't complain, really. I I mean, that scene uh, when uh, when Carson dies in the episode Carson dies yeah. um, on the pier. I mean, my heart broke for Rodney yeah. because this he was still there's there was still this element of a child in him within yeah. a man who Very was childlike. really trying to grow up and deal with the reality that one of his best friends was dead. And there might have been something he could have done different, which we all go through is if only I had done this, if only I had done that. I mean, he made us connect to his grief in a fantastic way. I mean, I think it's one of the finest moments in television, mm-hmm. to be perfectly frank. And yet he still had flaws. He still had to grow. And you followed him all the way through the series for all five years, and you bought it with him. Or I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can only speak for myself. So mm-hmm. um, I think he was a fantastically flawed but likable character. Um you know, and then, unfortunately, I have to complain about the woman characters again on Stargate Atlantis. Um, Taylor was very flat. She was very Mary Sue. Very. Rachel did everything that she could with oh, that character, with what she was given. But the fact of the matter was the character was uninteresting. I mean, i got to be honest. Um, I think all of these actors totally brought their A game. I don't think yeah. this was an actor thing at all. I think that it was within the parameters of the show they were trying to do. Um, and also, God knows what kind of network notes they were getting. Get we don't we have no it's idea. True, we have no idea whatsoever. But uh, Taylor was very flat to me. Elizabeth had moments where she would get interesting, but obviously she really got interesting once she uh, once she basically became a replicator. Then it was like, wow, talk about flawed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. 
And then, mm-hmm. fortunately, um, Jennifer Keller, again, they fall back to flat again, and it was so disappointing. Mm-hmm. I love the episode where they had the women's, the, the, the team that was all women. Yes. And <laughs> I, I was very, and they had uh, the actress who played Esri Dax on Deep Space Nine. Um, Nicole DeBoer. Nicole DeBoer. And that I, was a terrific team. Had there been a season six, I know there would have been another episode featuring them because they were just, I mean, you just ate that up. Yes, you really did because they were... They were they were likable but flawed. It was really well handled, and I was really fascinated by them. But um, yeah, I mean, the only other character that I can really speak of that stood out for me as being three dimensional, uh, significantly three dimensional. Well, Richard Woolsey definitely went through an arc. I don't know if he ever became super likable, but but that's again that's another character who started off as an antagonist, just like Rodney, and grew into a part. Right. You know, that's that's terrific. That's just that. But you wanted to talk about Ronan. Yes, Ronan. I mean, for me, Ronan was great for me. He was very raw. He was a very raw, emotional character who uh, was filled. He was almost like the anti-Tilk. You know, he was filled, filled with flaws and he wasn't going to drop them for anybody. No way, no how, because in his mind, those flaws are what were keeping him alive. Did he grow a little bit? Not so much. As he could have. I think there was potential for more with him. I think they got stuck with him as well. I think, again, we have no idea what the notes were for it. I just I feel like there was a lot of hesitation in letting these characters really grow. And I can understand why Stargate Universe was such a refreshing opportunity for them. Because they were really allowed to just let her rip with those characters. <laughs> Yeah, flawed characters, I mean, kind of a synonym of that is Stargate Universe. Yes, absolutely. I really felt that that was the show where they went out, and for better or for worse, you know, whether you liked the characters or not, that was the series that they that they wanted to do, they wanted to feature flawed characters. I mean, at that point, you know, Battlestar had already been on the air. I know a lot of network notes suggested that they wanted, the, they wanted Stargate to be... Uh, uh, Stargate Universe to be the next BSG. They wanted it to be that uh, that successful. Unfortunately, never it never became that. But they tried it with the characters, you know, yeah. and they tried it with the characters to the extent that a lot of fans resented that the characters were so flawed. Well, and I, I can understand exactly and appreciate the problem, that. Is that there was too much flaw and not enough like? Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. thank God they did a mid course correction with Colonel Young. Because I, I mean, Darren and I, I remember some of our earlier podcasts. And by the way, here's a shout out to Darren. We miss you. We uh, do indeed. A lot. Darren and I both were, we just kept seeing something in Colonel Young. We kept hoping he was going to come around and it didn't happen until the second season. And we were both, we both really sighed a collective yeah. sigh of relief because. Even the destiny does. And she jumps back to yes. hyperspace. So, <laughs> so, okay, now we can go. Yes, exactly. I'm not going any further until you fix this. That's right. It's pretty funny. I'm sure the writers did that on purpose. But it, it's very hard to do that balance of flawed but likable. Mm. But if we're going to follow these characters, if we're going to care about these characters, then you have to give us something to like about them and connect to them. Plus, you're dealing with a franchise where Jack O'Neill and John Shepard both were, they had flaws, but you really cared about them and you rooted for them because they were the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, once they fixed that for Young, um, he was wonderful for the Mm -hmm. rest of the run and I just, 
it's it's a painful thing to think about what could have been, you know, in a third mm-hmm. season, really. Um, mm-hmm. Rush. I've blocked it out of my mind, <laughs> crying out loud. <laughs> did you like Rush? I mean, like. I did. Why? I did. I liked Why? him a lot. Why? Why? I thought of him as the uh, the Stargate uh, uh, universe answer to Ben Linus from Lost. Huh. Where I knew going in, or Q, I knew going in that this guy was probably going to be ultimately a villain, but I was looking forward to a foil for the other characters. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan on siding with Rush, you know, in terms of his goals. He's very Machiavellian. In, in approaching, you know, that show, I was looking forward to the journey. And anyone who made that journey interesting, I was going to enjoy watching. And that's that was my source of interest for him. Like, ha- ultimately, I thought that you know, when it, wherever they, whenever they were, they were going to get where they were going, I ultimately thought that he was going to you know become a villain, and it was going to be something like, you know, wherever they are, uh, the Frodo and Gollum, you know, equivalent of 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 Young and Rush on the precipice, fighting to the death. Um, and I, that's why I was looking forward to that character's growth. And, you know, unfortunately it was cut short. Yeah. But, you know, they really, I think they really gave us more opportunities to connect with Rush than they did with Young. They did. I mean, they gave the beautiful mind episode. They gave us insight into his past, into what makes him tick, what, what, you know, his heart, what he cares about. And Young really deserved more of that. And well, see, here's the thing: Rush's Rush's love was already dead. She, right, she was already gone, and Young was still stuck at home, you know, with his, with his estranged wife. So they spent a lot of time covering those two areas. So when Emily went, you know, when when the when they were finally annulled or divorced or whatever you want to call it. Um, then they could start moving places with with Young, but they didn't really get the opportunity to to go into that backstory. You know, this is someone who knew Jack O'Neill. Yeah. Now, this is someone who who knew him well enough that Jack handpicked him for that mission. Yep. And we never got that story. No, we didn't get that. But also, I mean, once TJ was pregnant with his child, I would like to have seen an episode with him struggling and coming to terms with. His child, you know, the fact that he's mm-hmm. going to have a child, and then I would like to have seen more of his pain, and I'd like to have seen him, you know, again, excuse the non-PC statement, but I'd like to have seen him man up and like yeah. fold TJ into his arms and share his grief with her, and let mm-hmm. her be surprised and see, and let us with her see a side of him that we hadn't been allowed to see. There was. A lot mm-hmm. of golden opportunity there to mm-hmm. allow him to really be raw from the experience of having a child, getting finally coming to terms with it. You're going to have a child, and then you'll somehow make it work. And then just as you're coming to terms with it, you lose the child. Mm-hmm. That's painful for anybody. And, you know, it, it, it would have helped us to connect with him. One of the things about the um, – about uh, the, the previous shows – compared to universe universe started off in the middle sg1 and atlantis we saw those commands build from the ground up and i was always looking forward to an episode where we saw icarus space not necessarily get built 
but the founding of the team and bringing them together. I thought that that was an episode that they were going to plan for later in season one because those sets were still standing at that point. Interesting. And they wanted to start those characters in the middle of already knowing one another. You already see TJ and Greer and Scott. They've, they've already got a bond built from when they were at Icarus Base. So by virtue of that, a lot of fans were left out in getting to know the team together. And that's another example of showing and not, not telling. You know, We had to assume that they had already you know, built an experience together from being at Icarus for, what was it, six months at that point. We did not get the opportunity to see that. No. And so we were we were thrown into destiny with them, you know, with with all already their relationships kind of already figured out. And we're trying to go along and figure out where everyone stands at that point. I really was looking forward to an episode where they would have, you know, shown uh, the team being assembled to go to Icarus space and tell some kind of a backstory like that. But they they never did. No, they never did. I didn't. I mean, they, there was other things that. They needed to work on as well. I mean, Scott was, I still feel that his character was not handled well. He was almost a Mary Sue with elements where they were trying to make him imperfect, but it was such a mixed message that everybody has a different interpretation of what Mm -hmm. was going on. And I'm not even going to get into what the interpretation was, but everybody had a different interpretation of who he was. So Scott was not handled as well as, as he could have been. Chloe kind of took the opposite approach in the sense that uh, she was kind of flat to begin with, and she really became an interesting character that was not likable, but in a good way, uh, I think. Mm. You know, I I think that she became more interesting. You know, who knows what happened? I I felt that that character was never particularly effective. No, I think that I I, I don't. They tried. Yeah, they tried, exactly. Uh, They have trouble with women. TJ? You know, we got man. What a gold man. mine that they didn't—they didn't mine there. I know. With water, I mean, you and I. How many times have you and I talked about that and lamented the fact that they that they approached something really interesting there, but there were so many men in front of her that they could never do it. Yep. Yep. I mean, the the water. I mean, when they had that scene in water where she is fighting off those things and she is telling everybody what to do, I was like. Finally, a strong woman character. I love mm-hmm. this woman. Here we go. And... Who can still, you know, break down and cry every now and then. But, you know, when she has to man up, she can do it. Yes, yeah, she really can. And it was, she, they could have done so much more with her. And it's unfortunate that they didn't, that they put her back into the pregnancy thing. Even pregnant, she could have been just a ferocious mm-hmm. soldier, a pregnant, ferocious soldier, you know. And. Mm-hmm. Well, look at Belana Torres. You know, I'm rewatching Star oh, Trek Voyager yeah. oh. season seven, you know, and she's pregnant throughout it. But still, I mean, and there are a couple of episodes in there where she's a damsel. But still, I mean, they made it work. Yes, that is a great example of a strong woman character who was flawed but likable. And in fact, she's, <laughs> she's not likable in the first few episodes. You're not. No, she's to, not. And I don't think you're supposed to like her in the first few episodes. Exactly. But even in the later seasons, you know, every time she crosses her arms and puts up her shields, I laugh out loud. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But so, she was great. It just worked. She was great. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I love Janeway. Janeway, to me, was a great role model mm-hmm. uh, character. What a great role. Mm-hmm. What an absolutely great role. Um, I would have liked Seven of Nine 
more if she wasn't wearing a cat suit. I think that's one of the... Oh, you and I go round and round about this. I know. Well, I'm a woman, you're a man, and there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but, yeah, I mean, Stargate is really... They they were definitely... They they could be really good at the flawed but likable. Um, I understand they were trying to have that broad appeal, that SG-1 was really about appealing to family but ironically enough out of all of the series for me jack and daniel were still to this day are the most memorable characters from Mm -hmm. the entire franchise Mm -hmm. and had significant flaws were significantly likable you know so and yet that was all the way back in the beginning where it was more important to be family accessible yep which is interesting which is very interesting, but I'm not sure we had promised we were going to talk about 9-11 a little bit and how it shifted things more towards the flaws, yet remaining likable in regards to television characters. And I can't remember where SG-1 was in production. It was about season five. Five, I think. Actually, yes, I remember from an email I got from Joe Malazzi because I interviewed him for a, uh, a paper that I wrote on science fiction pre and post 9-11, and it was season five. I mean, I'm sure that the Ori were their attempt to explore some of the issues, mm-hmm. um, as, although for me they were a little heavy-handed. I know it was, it was a cool attempt. I just think it went a little overboard. But, um, I mean, you were talking about Star Trek Enterprise, which was in the middle of production also. and it may Yeah, 9-11 hit, and then uh, either a few, a few weeks before or a few weeks after, Enterprise hit the screen. And it was all very, you know, naive and wondrous and wet behind the ears. But season two just sunk because it was still the same thing. We were already moving on in terms of our in terms of our entertainment wants to the point where by the time they got around to season three, they decided to create a disaster in the show that transformed all the characters that made them interesting whether or not you like Enterprise, I happen to I, – I generally watch it once a year in the fall, and it's the only show – it's the only Star Trek that I tend to go go back to. Even though it's not my favorite, I, I tend to maybe, – maybe because it's, it's shorter and more digestible, I tend to watch it once a year, and I find things about it that I like more and more every time I rewatch it. And season three, as a season, is the best season – continuity wise from beginning to end because it's all it's all essentially one episode of Star Trek ever in my opinion because they took the characters to these dark places very dark places and managed to you know give them a a mission that that um that everyone could rally behind yeah. um yeah. they dabbled in areas in Star Trek that I think had Roddenberry you know been alive he would have said no you can't go there you know, I don't, I'm not even sure if Roddenberry would have even allowed the Dominion War at that point. But um, no, he did it not needed like to go space, there. He did not like Deep Space Nine. He was not happy with that either. I mean, he uh, uh, even Next Gen, as he backed, you know, as it got more and more interesting, and he mm-hmm. backed off from it. He was not pleased with it. But yeah, I mean, the thing I think about that third season of Star Trek Enterprise is that we were so raw from 9/11, had so much anger, yeah. and that season did a terrific job. Well, Tucker uh, embodied that. It anger. gave us a vehicle for that anger. Yeah. You know, in a way that you didn't quite feel it with the Ori, to be perfectly frank. And I mm-hmm. think it's because it was 
more complicated with the ORI and there was more telling and less showing, whereas with Enterprise, man, you were you were shown it. I mean, they attacked Earth. And- yeah, the ORI never it- maimed us. They tried, but I mean, the the thing about the opening, or the I should say the, the finale of season two of Enterprise is we're attacked and everybody's raw and in pain. And everyone's, one of the things that I love about that episode is, you know, no one knows what's going on. There's the the de- I mean, east so, even so far in the future with it, with information being what it is, the ship is still is still several weeks away from Earth. They they have an idea of what the death toll is. They have an idea of what happened, but no one knows. And that was so relatable because we all experienced it. You know, there were so many, you know, w- rumors of other attacks. You know, it was just running rampant that day. Do you remember? I yes. mean, I watched a I watched yes. a documentary recently, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember. I I remember hearing rumors that the Sears Tower was hit. Oh yes, and yes. you know, this just it was just very it fits. And Archer you know? Archer went to some very dark places, and in very fact, dark. some of it was reminiscent for me of Deep Space Nine, which was pre nine eleven. Uh, especially yeah. the episode in the pale moonlight. What a delicious episode! Oh my goodness! When Cisco basically I can uh, live with cheats, that. he cheats his way through to get the bigger objective, which is to get the Romulans on their side of the Dominion War. Which, Otherwise, war's lost. Right, exactly. And there's another example of showing versus telling. When they attack Earth, we see them attack the Dominion attack Earth. Mm-hmm. We feel it. Deep Space Nine did a fantastic job of making you feel lost. Uh, at all times. I mean, that pilot remains, in my opinion, the gutsiest Star Trek pilot of all of the series. In fact, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the gutsiest pilots ever. I would mm-hmm. put it right up there with the Breaking Bad pilot as far as it being mm. gutsy. And they ch- I can't wait to see that show. Yeah, that's a crazy show. That is a crazy show. Talk about flawed and becoming less and less likable. Uh, although the mid-season finale made Walt, the main character, uh, become... A little more likable, and this is the thing since nine eleven is that we are really dealing with. You still have that protagonist, you still have that main character, but yeah. the whole idea of the protagonist being the crusader hero has taken off a deeper it's le- meaning. It's boring. Well, it's not that there's they are there still are crusader type heroes, but but it in itself is no longer just interesting. But it's not it's not about right versus wrong anymore. It's about right. which is the lesser of two evils. If yeah. you look at for instance 24, that's a great example of Jack Bauer, I mean, and how far he would go to protect the right thing. And I mean, this is where in the Pale Moon- Moonlight from Deep Space 9 gets into that and I mean Breaking Bad it is all about levels of shades of evil. I mean, it is about mm-hmm. this guy has cancer and he's worried about the prim- general prim- starting premises. He's got cancer and doesn't have the money to pay for his treatments. Mm-hmm. And he's worried about his wife. He's worried about his children. And the only opportunity he sees out of it is to dig himself in a hole. Mm-hmm. And he gets sucked into that hole. And it is incredibly dark. Walt, at this point, for me as a viewer, having watched it all the way through, I don't care about Walt anymore. I do. <laughs> I do care about his family. I do care about Jesse. I mean, I do care about his partner, and my heart breaks for that character all the time. So even don't though, tell me too much. <laughs> even though that character is also flawed, there is something quite likable, and that's an acting thing. It's also a yeah. writing thing. Uh, Walking Dead. Here is another really good example of a modern series and having to pick between the lesser of two evils. I mean, Rick, yeah. the sheriff. Rick's, 
yeah, doing what he has to to keep his family alive. Including killing off people that he was very fond of and very close to. I mean, in the pilot, you see him, I mean, he, you, if you have not watched the series, I mean, I, do we do spoilers here, David, or do we do middle? Uh, let's just keep it general. Okay, let's keep it general. You will see. I have not seen season two. Okay, well, you will see this guy have to make some choices that are incredibly painful and incredibly ugly. But let's be frank here. That's real life now. It but is, they dare to go to those places and make you watch the choices. I mean, really, the, the, the theme of post-9-11 characterization and plot is, are there really any moral absolutes? And the king of exploring that theme is Battlestar Galactica. I agree. I don't know what show... Um was as informed from 9-11 as Battlestar was. It really took our grief and our frustration with our with, with the circumstances that had occurred and with our government and, you know, with fear of the future and generated uh, uh, four magnificent seasons yeah. well, of storytelling. Four, I mean, I always consider it five because the miniseries, I always look at a season one. I don't know yeah. why, you know, because it's long enough that you can certainly do it that. It was. Yeah, Um I mean, and every single one of those characters had flaws, but they had, they each had, for the most part, a lot of them had a shared objective, which was the, the saving of the human race. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, the Cylons had a different attitude, but, but how wonderful was it that we got to see for a year their side of the story and how they were trying to save the Cylon race. And it mm-hmm. really became about survival. And how far will you go to survive? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that is a natural instinct we all have. I mean, look at President Roslin, and uh, she's right that she would be better as president for the the column, for the uh, the fleet than Baltar. And she doesn't even know the things that we know mm-hmm. about Baltar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she knew she was doing the wrong thing, rigging the votes, but she wanted the fleet to survive. Mm-hmm. She apps, that was the shared vision that she had with everybody. So how far will you go was really the question, and it was handled brilliantly all the way through. And, yeah, okay, there were parts of the finale that weren't great, but there were other parts of the yeah. finale that were awesome. So, I know. you know, it was a mixed bag. But yeah. those characters, every single one of them was flawed. And, in fact, the main thing that I get out of that finale is that it really was Apollo's story in the end. Uh, he needed to lose Starbuck, and he needed to lose his father in order to become a rounded character, hmm. in order to become his own self, because his father made demands and expectations on him. Starbuck, just the way she was, uh, affected him and made him different than who he really was. So for the first time in his life, that's why she asked him at the end, what are you going to do now? What do you really want to do? He takes that huge sigh and he looks around and it takes him a moment to think, what do I personally need for the first time in my life? I'm being asked, what do I want to do? Yeah. And it's a huge, significant moment. Um, Now, um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about um, science fiction. We've talked a little bit about non-sci-fi. You know, also comedies are changing too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I am, I've got your arm twisted behind your back trying to get you to watch Community. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a brilliant Ooh. series about, they're all flawed characters. 
They are all so flawed. Jeff Winger is the ultimate of flawed, but they're all flawed characters from Abed Mm -hmm. to Troy to Pierce. Uh, All of them are flawed. And it is the the, the whole message of the story is that it's by uh, being part of community that you can heal out of those flaws. And if you have not seen this show, you need to watch it. I don't know really anyone who's watching it other than Diana and apparently Nathan Fillion. Um, but it is a great <laughs> series. Yeah. Um, and the critics I've love started it. it. It's very, I'm very impressed with it. And I'm, very, I'm, I'm always amazed that I never hear about it. I never hear word of mouth about it like I hear about Breaking Bad. Well, it was just nominated for a Hugo for the same episode that's been nominated for an Emmy for Best Writing, Remedial Chaos Theory, which is a great alternate timeline story believe it or not um and all the critics love it they all the day after the emmy nominations they all in an outrage said that the number one snub was that community was that the actors were not nominated and that the series was not nominated that was the number Mm. one snub so the critics absolutely love the show it is clever if you are a fan of science fiction of fantasy of pop culture this is the show for you and these characters are all very very flawed and they're also very, very likable, and it is a dance that the writers and the actors have to do in order to get both across because their flaws are what creates the um, plots for the episodes. It's the, their actions and inactions and the choices they make are what moves the story forward, and yet even though their flaws are what causes the story – it is they're growing out of that flaw, which is what wraps the episode up, and mm-hmm. it's a ton of heart. It's really a wonderful story. Another good sci-fi series, though, for flawed but likable characters would be Alphas, which I know you haven't watched. It's a sci-fi I have not seen it. series. I know quite a few of our listeners are boycotting sci-fi these days, uh, but Alphas, Alphas is worth watching. It's in its second season now. It's about uh, one of the creators was definitely involved with the X-Men movies, and it is about characters who are born with mutated abilities. They have one ability that has been, um, I don't want to say exaggerated, uh, that has just been enhanced somehow. And yet that enhancement is also, they see that as a negative thing, these people that have these abilities, and they're very lonely and they feel very isolated. And they feel flawed. Hmm. And in fact, that the main title, if you watch the main title, which is a great main title, uh, the song, it's a kind of a rock song, rock rhythm blues song. And the title of the song is People Like Me. And it talks about this feeling of isolation, which can come out of being flawed. And certainly the characters we've been talking about from Archer to uh, all the Battlestar characters to Jack O'Neill, they all had these this sense of isolation that they were alone on the outside looking in because of the flaws in their inherent in their characters but the i mean if we want to end this on probably one of the most deliciously wonderful flawed but likable outsider characters we can talk about the upcoming premiere of season seven of dexter finally (laughs) i know i know some people who aren't interested in watching a show about a serial killer and i can i can understand and you know appreciate that but and truth be told, I mean, my jury was out through the entire first season of the show as to whether or not I was going to continue to watch it. But I don't watch it for Dexter. I watch it for Deb, um, his sister. Here you've got a character who, um, to feed this primal urge that he has, has found a balance in his life 
for taking out other bad guys, taking out other villains, studying, researching them, seeing if they're going to kill again, and he takes them down. I'm, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there is a, there was a scene at the end of season six where you had uh, a very, very forthright and flawed character discover something about someone else. And it's going to be an interesting dance to watch in season seven to see how they're going to portray this individual finding out this terrible secret and how they're going to come to terms with knowing what they know. And it's, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a a terrific year. If you've not watched this show, it's worth watching. See, now it's interesting because I don't watch the show for Deb. I watch it for Dexter for De- because yeah. Dexter is a broken to me. Dexter is had arrested development, <laughs> another great series of flawed, mm-hmm. <laughs> likable characters, mm-hmm. um, which, David, you really need to watch if you haven't. They're making new <laughs> okay. episodes for Netflix. Yes, you're, you can't work anymore. Just lock yourself in a room and watch television. Oh, there you go. But um, – I mean, Dexter, uh, that whole first season, I mean, in the very first, I have a student right now who in my teleplay class is writing a pilot, and uh, it is a very flawed situation that's going on, flawed characters, and I pointed out to him that from the get-go, we have to connect with this flawed protagonist and identify with them or forget it. You're going to lose us. Yeah, and if you don't, you don't, you don't have a series then, here. Yeah, and Dexter did that right away in the pilot because... You knew that he was doing going to do something terrible, and yet right away within the first couple of minutes, it's he he shows why he's doing it. The motivation for mm-hmm. this this person that he's kidnapped that he's going to kill is because this guy that he's going to kill was killing Scum. all these children. He was trash, yeah. and Dexter's going to take out the trash. And that whole first <laughs> season is about why what is what is driving dexter to be like this and it is revealed about his childhood and what happened and how he seeks solace in the killing and the reason why he seeks solace in the killing and why he goes after these particular types of people see for me the pinnacle of the series was season four there is a scene with him where you really think he's going to stop being like this and you believe it Actor, well, he's reached a place the actor where he's, is so, yeah. I mean, he was nominated for an Emmy for that. He's nominated every year now, but that was when he deserved the Emmy was that one scene because I, who know better and am a scholar of television and storytelling, should have known, of course, of course he's not going to give it up because the series would be over then. And I know the series isn't over, but that scene, I so believe that he had been healed, that he had grown. And it was such a painful thing that happened that caused what they refer to as negative change, negative growth. And now that's where the character's going. Now he's, it's just, it's going to be the destruction of Dexter as a character. And I will be looking for that, those moments where I can still connect with him mm-hmm. and care about him. And I can't kill an ant, okay? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, you know, when my husband, when we have we have a cattle, an organic cattle ranch here, and my husband has to weigh the cows and bring them into the corral and put them through the head gate to get them on the scale. I can't be around because when I hear when I hear the cow inside the head gate struggling and freaking for a moment, I'm panicked that the poor cow is going to break its leg. Okay, so yeah. I'm not a killer, but I see Dexter and how broken he is, mm-hmm. and 
how he is striving for solace and peace and he is striving for growth and his own his own uh, flaws are what keep that from happening and it's mm-hmm. a beautiful sad story that i just i love and i can't i can't wait for the premiere i mean this is if you want to go all the way back to jack o'neill i mean jack was always my absolute favorite character because of the decisions that he would have to make that were painful the mm-hmm. things that ha- he would have to do that were hard and uh the anger that he had to control in order to keep his team together that's the stuff that that makes for the flawed but likable character because we all have those traits where we have to yeah. rise above our base instincts and make decisions between the lesser of two evils see that's interesting but you watch it you watch it for dexter and i i definitely now have found myself watching it for Deb because in the first season I didn't care for her and a part of that was all my friends saying I can't stand Deb so I went in believing that I wouldn't be able to tolerate her and in the first season she's all about getting her shield you know or becoming right. a be, right. uh, becoming a, a real she because she's just she's just basically playing a hooker on a street right and in the second season it's about getting her shield but after that she has such a strong moral center of right and wrong and when you see her go at hurdles where she has to decide between the lesser of two evils you see how she breaks and i think we i i've been watching the series from the beginning knowing that that the the Deborah from the novels is very different than the Deborah on the on the television series and that when she is confronted with with such darkness, if she ever found found out her her brother's her brother's secret, it would destroy her. Yeah, but wouldn't you say that Dexter is also very different in the in the series from the book? Absolutely. Uh, oh, completely. Yeah. I'm just talking about Deb. Right. So, <laughs> it's a it's a worthwhile show. You should check it out. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, it will it's disturbing. But you know I, that this I'll also say is that as the series has gone along, for those of you who don't like gore. The gore has become has almost disappeared. Yeah, a lot of it is off camera. It's implied in a Hitchcockian sort of way. Yeah, uh, you don't really see it. It really I is a dramatic. I never thought it was a lot of gore to begin with. No, there really, really there really that. wasn't. I mean, the first season I think was probably the most gory with the ice truck killer. Um, yeah, they were trying to. I think set a tone for the show and trying to shock you a little bit. Exactly. They were trying to get attention. I just, I think that it really is about the question of moral absolutes. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, it's supposed to make you squirm. I think it's a lot of people don't want to go there. A lot of people don't, don't want that boat to be rocked. Well, I think it's fabulous to have it rocked. I mean, I think that this is, <laughs> I, I mean, we were saying at the beginning, television is, is uh, storytelling is to teach us and remind us of what's right and what's wrong. And there's this great, uh, great line from the musical Camelot where, uh, you know, King Arthur, where uh, some, some piece of information comes out and... Uh, it's revealed that Arthur was doubting what was going on, and Lancelot was like, how could you be like that? And Arthur says, only a fool never doubts. And it's been also said, I think, in, in somewhere else, that doubt can lead you to greater faith. Mm-hmm. So 
Mm-hmm. I do think that the morality play that Dexter is, and I would say all of the, the, the television shows we've discussed tonight, is it does give us an opportunity with these flawed but likable characters to be honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that's sorely missing right now in general. And even if we yeah. have to do it in the comfort of our home as we sit in front of the cool fire, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, we're going to uh, get back to our normal routines here and let you return to your normal routine as well. Uh, drop us a line for the uh, GateWorld podcast, 951-262-1647. You can leave us a voicemail day or night. It will not wake anyone up. Uh, you can also uh, email webmaster at gateworld.net with any comments, and Darren will be sure to pass them on to us. Uh, let him let let him know that you miss him. You know, we'll, hopefully we'll be getting him back. You know, for for a show at some point here. I know he's moving back into the states. Yes. So there's there's a lot of change in his life coming up this fall, and uh, it's gonna be nice to to have him join us once again. So thank you for tuning in, and thank you, Diana, for continuing to uh, co-host. Yep, David, it's been a treat. This is a fun topic, and I'm very curious to see what people think when they post in the uh, forum. We encourage you to share your thoughts. Let us know some of your favorite flawed but likable characters. And let us know if you disagree. Disagree is good. Absolutely. From GateWorld, this is David. And this is Diana. And we'll be speaking to you soon on the next installment of the GateWorld podcast. <laughs>